Thank you so much for that, Chief Davis. And I think, you know, as we imagined this call, I never would have imagined Shakespeare being an integral part of the conversation on SB 1070 and racial profiling. So thank you for that unique perspective as well. So we are going to open it up for questions. As I told you earlier, if you want to ask a question, press star one on your phone, and then we will be able to unmute you um, so you can ask your question. And we will unmute people in the order that they get in the question queue. Um, I also would ask that when you ask your question, please identify yourself and if you're affiliated with an organization, then also what organization you're affiliated with. And finally, I know I myself have a couple of questions, but we do have someone in the queue already, so we're going to go to our first question, and if there ends up being a pause, I may ask a question or two myself. Thanks. Hello. My name is Jeremy Tobin. I'm with the Mississippi Immigrant Rights Alliance. Uh, we've been fighting against the racist integration policies in Mississippi for years. Uh, most recently in the last session, we defeated uh, HB 488, which is a copycat Arizona 1070 law. It took an awful lot of effort because we have a Republican-controlled legislature and government and governor. Uh, we um, uh, are still in a fight with this. We managed uh, our advocacy caused the city of Jackson to enact an anti-racial profiling ordinance in the city of Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, we have our the law enforcement people here are um, are, are very against the, the the cost factor the way the chief just described it. Uh, my, my question was not so much to say that, but to say that we are in solidarity with your your efforts. Uh, I was on a conference call last week with um, another ACLU uh, inspired group, uh, Stones and Needles. I uh, did a follow-up call. I'm a priest. I have a church uh, about an hour from here in Carthage, Mississippi, with a lot of Guatemalan immigrants up there. Hey, Jeremy, if you could get to your question, please, because we have others in the queue. Oh, all right. I'll, I'll just stop there. I was just making a statement. That's all. All right. Well, thank you for that. If we could go to the next question. And if you could also let us know uh, who you're asking or directing your question to. Oh. Okay, so I'm going to go ahead then and ask my question. So, Opal, if I could ask you directly, I know you talked some about some of the resistance that's going on, uh, some of the actions you have planned, but if you could tell us a little bit about what is the atmosphere on the ground, how are, you know, how are people reacting, how is it affecting communities and individuals, I'd love to hear a little more about that. Yeah, so on the ground, um, communities, families, individuals are some are scared, some are, or some are honestly scared, uncertain about what this really means, and then some don't think this is going to impact them at all. And this is just, you know, being, being honest. Some folks, it's like kind of a mixed bag where it, the ruling was so ambiguous in many ways, folks aren't so sure how it's going to be implemented. Um, so there's definitely mixed sentiments, no, you know, depending on where you go, who you talk to, um, some folks are, you know, really concerned, and then some folks are like, yeah, you know, I think uh, things are going to be okay, this will be overturned, um, or there's no real way to implement um, this. Uh, the core, uh, the people that we've been interacting with, though, have taken the stance that, you know what, um, it's still best for me to know my rights, it's still best to be aware of what to do in the event that uh, law enforcement pulls me over and, I, you know, I have some sort of interaction with law enforcement. I need to know at least how best to handle myself and, and be um, part of a community that can advocate uh, with me. And so that's 
that's been a lot of the sentiment that we've seen, um, and that's more through these efforts to organize communities. And then the other thing is that there are new crisis lives that have been formed to respond to questions that people have. So once we heard uh, the announcement from the Supreme Court, there were a lot of calls coming in. So there are volunteers who are now staffing uh, various crisis lines across the state and just answering, you know, basic questions and then questions that have to do with SB 1070 and then some questions that have to do with, you know, a variety of other other concerns that people have. But just the fact that there's now a crisis line that's really targeted at the um, immigrant community. So if they do have any questions or any concerns or any incidents that arise, um, folks are there to at least document them as well as provide an opportunity to advocate with them or point them to an organization or a service provider or um, neighborhood group that can um, help address the issue they called um, about. Yeah, so thanks a lot for that assessment. We do have a few questions in the queue, so we're going to go to our first question. Uh, uh, this is Casey Chama from the uh, Center for Intercultural Organizing based in Portland, and this question is for uh, Chief uh, Ronald. So in terms of, uh, and potentially uh, Omar, in terms of the implementing S1070B, uh, uh, what, what guy, guidelines or at least uh, directions are you getting from the federal government in terms of the implementing, uh, whether, you know, as the police chief, um, what are you getting some sort of a direction um, in order to implement this uh, uh, bill? And then the second question is that what advice do you have for us uh, to, in order to approach our local uh, police uh, uh, departments in order to work with them, um, making sure that we, there's an act of balance between people's civil liberties as well as, you know, making sure that, you know, the, the law is not broke. Uh, broke. Uh, this is uh, Chief Davis. So I, I can't speak for Arizona, but I would tell you historically, as far as what, if, what guidance from the federal government with regards to the law to be none, and I think that's why most of us advocate, all of us are advocating for the Interracial Profiling Act. So one is you have, um, this is a state law with 1070, and so other than probably existing federal law with regards to the Fourth Amendment and potentially the 14th Amendment, I don't think there is guidance, and because it, there's not, that is one of the main problems, in my opinion, is goes back to my earlier statement, that as people interpret what is reasonable suspicion, what role race can play, uh, you're going to see the range from, from I mean, some, to, from extreme polars as far as what people think how race can be used. Um, so I, I think part of it is that I think we, or as individuals or collectively, can help provide that guidance. I think the best way to provide a guidance is the actual pass the Interracial Profiling Act so it's crystal clear. Um, and why this is also important, if I may say, is one of the things that all the agencies have, regardless of the state, even though we talk about the issue of federalism and states' rights, is all of us are still probably relying very heavily on federal funding. And so uh, one of the things we can do even addition, I guess, outside of the Interracial Profiling Act is to make sure that before agencies, police agencies, law enforcement agencies receive federal funding, whether they're COPS grants, whether they're you know, other Department of Justice grants, which we all rely on very heavily, they usually require some type of anti-discrimination policy, and we can also make sure that they require anti-racial profiling policies that are very clear in defining reasonable suspicion, how you can and cannot use race, because without it, then the federal government by, by default is funding these 
uh, unconstitutional practices. With regards to advice for other uh, police departments and the communities engaging, I think the best argument you can make, and I hate to put it this way, but I'm going to be uh, uh, pragmatic and, and real, is we can make the moral argument with regards to how people should be treated. We can make a constitutional argument, which would be debated as far as whether or not you can or cannot stop, whether you're talking about stop and frisk, whatever the case may be. Um, I think the best argument to make to law enforcement is the evidence-based one. In other words, to show police chiefs and your departments the benefit of not engaging in such practices, the benefit in strong community police relationships, and how it's going to make them better at crime fighting, and it's going to cost less. I think the senator's right. In this economy, none of us have the ability to engage in the same practices we did 10 years ago because, quite frankly, we just can't afford it. So I think we always make the moral argument. We always make the philosophical debate. We always focus on the Constitution. But for many of the departments, you just have to show them what's the return on their investment when they engage with the community. And I think there's examples. I like to think my department is one, 94% of color. It is one that, unfortunately, at one point was the murder capital of the United States. And working with this community with one of the lowest staffing ratios in the country, not engaging in stop and frisk, believing in redemption and rehabilitation, we've been able to cut our murders in half. Crime is down over 20%. Our police and community relationships are, are strong. They're still very, I mean, they still need nurturing every day. Um, and we, we can give that example around the country where you, agencies are actually becoming more effective because they're using intelligence, the use of proper use of technology and intelligence, they're engaging in, in, uh, with the community, and they're not engaging in practices that's going to cause communities to just basically just shut down. So I think you got to really let them see what's in it for them. I hate to put it that way, but I think that's the reality. Thanks, Chief Davis. So we've got three more questions. We're going to try and get to all of them. Uh, so next question, please. Yes, this is uh, Professor Ronnie Dunn from Cleveland State and Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, first, I'd like to thank all of the, uh, the, the chiefs and all of those that have commented. Uh, I have a meeting on Thursday with two state legislators to potentially introduce legislation on racial profiling at the state level. Now, uh, Cleveland has the largest minority population in the state, but it does not have local legislation at, at the local level either. So I'm working both at the local and state level to get racial profiling legislation enacted. I would like any recommendations that anyone can provide to help me make a, a very compelling argument to these representatives uh, why they should introduce this legislation, other than the obvious reason. Does anyone want to take that question? I just made this is Chief Davis. I'll make one recommendation. To the extent that you can get law enforcement support, um, which carries, uh, obviously we carry a lot of political weight. People look to us with regards to public safety. To the extent that you can get the support to understand um, what's happening and why they need to go in a direction would help you out tremendously to the legislators because what will happen is without them is you don't, what you don't want is your police officers association, your union, your police chiefs association to counter it with the idea that somehow um, that it would compromise public safety. One of the, unfortunately, one of the greatest ways that a lot of these efforts were thwarted throughout the country is this very inaccurate nexus that somehow this will tie the hands of police officers. It will result in depolicing and it will make the communities unsafe. 
So part of it, if not already, I would recommend that you really reach out to some of your chiefs. Um, I'm biased. You have a good one in Cincinnati um, with, uh, with uh, Craig. And really start finding out what programs they have, what they're putting into place, um, and try to get their support. And if nothing else, at least don't get their opposition so that you're not really fighting against the entire industry uh, because of misunderstanding of what the legislation that you're seeking will impact it will have on the uh, uh, on the state. Thanks again. So we're going to go to our next question. We've got two more in the queue. This is towards anybody who can answer the public affairs or media uh, questions. Um, will Working Rights Group or Rights Working Group uh, be developing uh, promos or broadcasts PSAs or anything like that that people can use with digital media to help people understand your campaign? And uh, what are the types of things that you really want to show people in 30 seconds? So this is Jimena from Rights Working Group. We don't have PSAs. We do have a, a few in terms of you're looking for multimedia. We do have a couple of videos online. Uh, they are longer videos, but you can show clips of them. We have a lot of fact sheets as well as uh, you know, trainings and packets for people to use. So there's a number of resources on our website, www.rightsworkinggroup.org. Um, but again, no PSAs. Can you take the next one? Why is that? Why, why no PSAs? Uh, fundamentally, funding. We don't have in-house capacity to create them, and we don't have a budget to create them. But if, you, if you'd like to contact me after we get explore, if you know of people who are willing to work with us in doing that, we would love to. Can we take the next question? Hi, my name is Mark Heller. I'm with Advocates for Basic Legal Equality in Toledo, Ohio. Um, we have a profiling lawsuit going against the United States Border Patrol, but my question is a bigger policy question. I think it's related to the previous question. How do you argue against um, Border Patrol, the increasing resources that are put into them? And, and in this case, it's a station that's along Lake Erie, doesn't have any land border, but they have about $10 million of resources a year, and they're sitting there, and, and uh, they're basically profiling Hispanics. So what's the policy argument against them? Because they say that they're fighting terrorism and gun smuggling and drug smuggling and human trafficking. Thank you. Well, Omar, I know the ACLU has done quite a bit of work on CVP, and they filed some lawsuits on the southwest border. Do you want to take that one? Yeah, I mean, I'm not actually I, – I mean, I'm afraid I don't have a lot more detail to offer except for what you just said, Jimena. Um Although, you know, I mean, I think certainly, uh, you know, I mean, one of the ironies about the Arizona case is that um, – a lot of these other claims, the, the racial profiling claims, uh, are are just as serious uh, when we're talking about federal officers doing immigration enforcement as they are uh, when we're talking about state officers doing it. So, you know, I think that, um, you know, um, it's certainly not uh, – we, we talk a lot about kind of state and local immigration enforcement leading to, you know, new incidents, new kind of opportunities and venues for racial profiling, but we shouldn't forget about the federal angle as well. And this is uh, Chief Davis from Adnir. One of the things that I think we also have to ask for with the uh, legislation was it's unfortunately, I think the, the, the administrative, I call it bulletin from the Justice Department definition provides an exemption or an exception for Homeland Security, I believe. And so I think we have to get them to remove that from the federal definition 
of racial profiling would be very helpful, and I think that would then dictate or basically mandate uh, your Border Patrol and your other federal agencies. But as long as they have that exception, um, then you're going to have this kind of activity. And I think a lot of people have been advocating for the Attorney General to uh, amend and to update that uh, policy. Yeah, that's, that's an excellent point. Thanks, Chief Davis. Certainly we have as well. And I'll just add, uh, PBS has been doing a series of documentaries now on, on CBP agents and issues of violence and accountability. And so there will be one airing this Friday, the 20th, on a PBS show called Need to Know, where they'll be looking at uh, cases of deaths at the hand of Border Patrol, but also you know, again, violence, sexual assault. And the Southern Borders Communities Coalition, well, they're here in Washington this week, and they'll be back in larger numbers next week. They're doing meetings on the Hill and with the administration to try and push the issue of CBP and accountability. The Northern Borders Coalition that's also forming has been working on this as well, so there's a couple of places for you to sort of plug in and link up and think through strategy. Again, you can reach me after the call if you'd like to follow up on that. My email is jmusa at rightsworkinggroup.org. So I would like to conclude this call by thanking our speakers, Omar Jadwa. Oh, okay, sorry, I forget about those technical pieces. But I'd like to thank Omar Jadwa, Opal Tometi, uh, Chief Davis, and Senator Cardin for joining us today to talk about these issues. We know there's been a great deal of concern. A letter came uh, signed by Arizona groups to, the, uh, to DHS asking for them to limit their interaction with state and local police under this provision. This week we sent in a letter that was signed by 233 groups across the country asking for those same limitations on interaction by DHS with state and local law enforcement as they operate under Section 2B. So there's a lot to come. Opal gave us a good rundown. We appreciate very much your time. And again, you can also check our website for any updates, www.rightsworkinggroup.org. Thanks, everyone, for joining.